A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. That's what Donald Trump did, you know? The, the Facebook ads worked for Donald Trump outside of the normal mm-hmm. process. And here come people who haven't voted before. And so, yeah. you know, I, I'm i not endorsing it. I'm just saying I, I get it and I want to wrestle with it. Oh, I want to wrestle it. Wrestle it to the <laughs> ground. This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. The home of grace-filled political conversations. glad that you're joining us here for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to give you an update on what's happening with impeachment and just give you some of our thoughts about the filings that have occurred in the Senate trial so far. And we're going to spend the main segment on the topic of the day, Monday, as we're recording, which is the New York Times editorial board's decision to endorse both Senators Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, and also just some general thoughts on the race. We've been talking amongst ourselves a lot about our preferred candidates and how we're thinking about all of this, and we've been trying to avoid too much of that horse race here on the podcast, but people are going to start voting soon. So it seems like time to begin those discussions in earnest, and we're going to do some of that today. And we're going to end with what is clearly the most important part of today's podcast, which is telling you about seeing Brandy Carlisle at the Ryman in Nashville, <laughs> Tennessee late last week. 
Before we get into all of that, one thing that we want to mention just here at the top of the show is that we have gotten lots of feedback about one of our sponsors on Friday's episode. We are not going to repeat the specifics of that product, but we know that many of you really embraced this idea of the sponsorship and some of you felt very offended by it and we had a feedback all over the spectrum. So we want to just spend a minute talking to you about our reactions to your reaction. It's really interesting as the feedback started to pour in. The first person who said, hey, uh, hey, uh, uh, heads up would have been nice. I immediately was like, oh my gosh, I thought that. Like in the moment I thought, I wonder if we should give people a warning. But the reality is, like, we're new to this. It's not like we have, we're not a corporate media conglomerate. We don't have corporate media policies about how to handle things like this. Um, and that's why I think having this conversation with all of you, listening to your feedback and sharing where we're coming from is really important to us and is reflective of our different approach to, you know, policies, advertisers, the whole thing. I think... You know, I struggle. And some of it, I I definitely think moving forward, we will give a heads up because I think that is a fair criticism, fair feedback, because we know so many of you listen with kids in the room. And so giving you a heads up when the advertisers will be sexual in nature is important. And then there's part of me that thinks, well, maybe we should just not do that type of advertising. Maybe it's not a good fit for us. But then I worry that we're stigmatizing that. I mean, I'm all over the place. I'm all over the place, too. It's really important to me to be thoughtful about what our audience wants. And what we learned from this experience is that our audience is in really different places. And that's going to be true on many of our sponsors. And it's also important to me to be respectful to the sponsors who make good products. You know, we try to be really discerning about who we work with. When we come across companies who are doing good work and who are particularly doing it in ways that we think are healthy and safe and good for women in particular, we want to be supportive of those sponsors. And so this is just a tough one. And I think it's good that people feel in relationship with us enough to reach out with their feelings on it so that we can really take that into account in the future. I do think it is fair to, to give some kind of um, heads up, too, that says, like, this is mature content coming because um, I really value that y'all trust us in your homes and families and with kids mm-hmm. around and want to keep that trust. Um, and I also think that we do just need to do some reflection on what are our values around sponsors and how do we make sure that we're both uplifting people that we think are making good products in the world that would serve this audience and being really judicious about what we put in front of the audience at specific times. So thank you for trusting us with that feedback. Thank you for trusting us to keep learning and keep in conversation with the entire community about the direction of the show and sort of sitting with the difficulty of past decisions we've made. We just, we really appreciate all the trust that you place in us. So there's just no good segue from let's have this relationship of trust within this community to impeachment, but that's where we're going to go now um, because that is what's happening this week. And whether we're burnt out on it or not as a community, it is a really significant part of governance. And Do our- you feel burned out on it? Um, I feel burned out on the facts a little bit. And I feel this sense, I mean, I'm curious what you think about this. I feel this sense of like, ugh, it, it's it been going on for a while. 
we know kind of what the outcome is going to be. I think I'm I'm more in a place of just wanting to make sure that people don't get exhausted by the drama of it, but still hold the historical significance of it. That's what I've been trying to do with myself, and I want to make sure that we do it here, too. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I originally had a very knee-jerk, this is just going to feel like a rehash. And for lots of reasons, it feels like a very important escalation that is most certainly not a rehash. I think part of it for me was abandoning, letting go of this idea of I. we know all we need to know. I think I've realized through Lev Parnas's interview on Rachel Maddow, through, you know, even some of the the way the House managers are laying out their case and the way the Trump administration is responding is we we need more information. This isn't over, you know, and I think part of it is 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 ignoring compartmentalizing this whole we know what the outcome will be, because I think that's really demoralizing and limiting when people try to think through what's happening with impeachment right now. So it feels different than I would have told you it felt a month ago to me. Instead of we've hashed all this out. Oh, my gosh, it was so exhausting. Maybe I just need it. Honestly, like maybe I just need a time from all the those testimonies. You know what I mean? Like maybe I just need a little space from all that to think through what happened and to realize like it's not over. It's not over yet. Just because we felt like they laid out a good case in the House hearings, there's just still so much we don't know. What do you make of that then? Because a huge part of the Trump trial brief, well, not a huge part, but a significant part that some senators seem to be latching onto is that the House really wasn't done with its work. Why do we have this if there's still so much yet to be developed? It's not the Senate's job to develop the factual record. I mean, I think I'm. Uh, the answer is it had to escalate in order for more information to come to light. Like, I think we could all have waited around for additional House hearings, but I'm not sure without the articles of impeachment being filed, if John Bolton would have ever come out and said he was willing to testify before the Senate. Or, I mean, clearly Lev Parnas needed some more time. There's some legal processes taking shape that open up new channels of evidence and information. And so I just think, like, waiting around for all that to happen was not the right approach, especially considering we're just on a deadline. I mean, the election is coming, right? And I think the harder thing for them to answer is not, why didn't you take more time to finish this case, but why couldn't we just wait for the election? And I think in the briefs, they do a good job of addressing that, of saying, like, this goes beyond what our framers considered up for question in an election. They put processes in place beyond elections for a reason. These impeachment exists for a reason. And this meets the imagined scenario for which they created that process. I'm trying to greet the Trump trial brief with a sense of openness because I really do want to understand the very best case for the president. I think that's important. Well, here's my first question to you, because this was the first thing I thought. You know, you spent time in practice. Right. I did not. So does this look like an answer or does this 
is just just off the rails different than what somebody would usually submit in this scenario. I mean, I don't know if there's an impeachment equivalent scenario, but you know what I mean. Well, so there are two different documents at issue. The first document is what the Trump team styled as an answer to the House brief. It does not look like a legal document. It looks like someone took a Trump rally speech and marked it up a little bit and turned it into the Senate. Okay, I mean, that was my instinct. I just wanted that confirmed by someone who actually read legal answers as part of their job. It it definitely... Now, now look, the House brief is different from a complaint that would be filed in court, too. But it does look like a brief that you would expect. Yeah. It cites to the record. It cites to precedent. The Trump trial brief in form is much more like a typical legal document. It's It has sections that you can follow along. You can outline it, and it cites mm-hmm. to the record, and it cites to legal precedent. So it is much more serious. I will say that in the, the spectrum of filings that lawyers all over the country make in a variety of proceedings, sure, this is not outside the realm of normalcy. It would have been ripped to shreds by the lawyers I practiced under for hmm. for its bluster and for the number of conclusory statements that it makes for hmm. all of the adjectives and adverbs. You know, the, the lawyers who trained me would say that if you have to resort to this type of language, you have no argument and that will be apparent to the court. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in my reading of it, I'm really trying to strip that stuff away and think, what do I find most compelling here? Oh, you know what would be fun is if you went through and stripped all those, stripped out every adverb, adjective, or conclusory sentence. What would be left? left? Yeah, we should do that. I might have just lost my afternoon because I am interested in what that would look like. <laughs> there are two points that I think are worth spending some time thinking about. The first one is... This idea that the House should have developed the case more before it went to the Senate. And the second is is probably related. The idea that obstruction of Congress is premature because Congress did not try to enforce its subpoenas through the judicial process. It's, it's kind of analogous to the idea that sometimes in court cases, we are required to exhaust remedies before the court mm-hmm. can take up the matter administratively. And I wonder if that's, you know, that's certainly not in the Constitution. We're all winging it when it comes to impeachment under mm-hmm. the Constitution because it gives us so little guidance. But but I am trying to wrestle with, okay, is there is there a point here that even with that election deadline looming, this whole process is supposed to be so serious and really separate and apart from political disagreement Should the train have slowed, even with that deadline coming up, in order to make sure that there was a fully formed record here? You know, that's a good point. It feels different to me when the House managers are trying to work within the process, push on the process definitely, adapt the process to this particular situation, controversy, political moment, which I think is probably what the framers intended by leaving the process so vague, versus the Trump administration, whose argument is basically like this, there there should be no process. 
the, I, with this process, there was no process. This process doesn't apply to us. I'm not really sure when they think impeachment would apply. They don't really make that case in any of the documents. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like moving around within the process as opposed to just saying this process doesn't apply. You're right. I mean, those two arguments are embedded in a sea of arguments that the facts established that he did nothing wrong. But even if he had done exactly what they say he did, that would have been okay too. And also the process is flawed. And also Mm -hmm. that the whole thing has to be dismissed outright. I think this one is very creative because the Constitution requires the Senate to to agree to convict on a specific basis for removal. And that because both of the articles of impeachment rely on several acts that they don't, that they're just framed up in a way that the Senate has to reject because senators could vote for removal on different bases as to each separate article. I think creative is a very kind word to use to describe <laughs> that argument. So, I, I mean, I agree with you. When you read the, the brief in full, it is very concerning to me the arguments being advanced in such a serious format with a totally straight face, that the president has the sole power over foreign policy, that the executive Mm -hmm. is so important that removing him would disrupt the country so much that we should hardly ever do it. I mean, they definitely want to have it always here. That is typical of legal arguments, too, I should say. (laughs) You know, that's not unusual. I think part of the reason that I'm feeling lower in spirits about this is because I have been immersed in reading these documents and just thinking about how much does the way we litigate um, an, an average case, like just the practice of law, how much do the behaviors and the norms underlying that practice contribute to getting to the highest, most serious kind of trial we can have as a country and so much of it feeling like a circus. The reality we have to confront, too, is that we're in this, in the in-between, man. It's political. It's legal. It's serious. The media's there. It's about a democratic process because they're democratically elected representatives and senators dealing with these issues. But it's this weird public referendum because there's constant polling on how people feel about this, not to mention that we're in the election cycle. So I think in some ways, it's really important to just ride it. You know what I mean? Like to just settle into there is no answer. There is no one text or argument or poll or anything that's going to reveal the right way to do this or if we're doing it the right way in the moment because it's it is a a cluster of situations and issues that are just unique not just in our history but in the legal environment in the political environment like it's it's there's just a lot going on here which is not profound analysis i acknowledge but it does seem important to sort of Keep that in mind as we move forward into this process, because you can't you can't read these legal documents 
and think you're going to sit up there as a judge and and really just let's just work through the arguments and find our legal conclusion when the way the process is going to play out is a political process with 51 votes from a senator is controlled by Mitch McConnell, who's openly said he's going to make decisions on very political basis. You know what I mean? Like there's just there's too much for us to think we're going to sit as logical neutral judge and jury in this situation and figure out the right answer. We just have to let it be what it is, which is a weirdo baby born of both politics and law. I guess that's true of all of history. You know, I think what is really profound in what you just said is that history... The weirdo baby part? That, I loved that. Um, <laughs> historians take note. But we're really bad in telling our own histories. We have We have been for the longest time really bad at being able to take the entirety of the context into account, especially all of the different perspectives that play into that context in telling what happened. So I was reading these briefs today thinking, wow, these are going to be part of a very limited record that we have on how we do impeachment in America. And when I read some of the statements in the briefs, that kind of depresses me because it is just at an 11 throughout. It's not the kind of language you're accustomed to seeing in documents at this level of our government. It is so fiery. And I wonder, especially given the explosion of context that there is to take into account, you know, we're not doing history from a couple of people's letters. We're doing it from a gazillion tweets and a media at its at its height in terms of volume. So what will this look like? Like, how will we come to understand this in future generations? We'll Mm -hmm. have to in some way. And I just wonder which of those factors that you just highlighted that are all really driving the bus here in their own ways, I wonder which of those will be considered down the road. I think just I'm trying to put myself in a place when we start on Tuesday as this podcast comes out to not expect a purely legal or a purely political process and just to let it be the weird mashup of both of those things that it is and not obsess too much about, you know, the purity of process because I just don't think that exists here. And I don't think there's a right answer to should the... House have waited for more evidence. Um, I do think there's a right answer to should we call some witnesses. That's what struck me the most reading the House's brief is when they sort of lay out the Sondland statement and, you know, Fiona Hill's quoting of John Bolton saying it was a drug deal. How much like, man, we really need to hear from John Bolton and Rudy Giuliani and the people higher up the chain about what was going on during these specific time periods, but not because I don't think that there's enough for us to understand, but just because there's still so much more we don't. And my gut tells me that the stuff we still don't understand is so much worse. So just letting it be that mix up and understanding that the senators are going to be confronting a combination of their political prospects, their personal morals and ethics, 
some of their legal backgrounds, all these things. Their it's legacies. just going to be a very, yeah, they're ve- it's going to be a very complex calculation for each of them. And there's nothing we can say or do to change that, I guess, is where I'm at. Like, whether you agree with it or not, or whether you, you know, think the process is flawed or per- whatever. Like, there's just at this point, we're moving forward into history. And there's a certain aspect of this combination of legal and political process that we cannot change. That is what it is. And to focus more on understanding what happened and making a decision about um, whether or not we think what happened was impeachable or not, what we think the impact on our processes and our democracy are, and just having that conversation in a real way. I I think that's probably why what I'm most concerned about right now is what I think is going to be a very important trial and conversation about all those things getting buried by the media approach of the Senate majority leader. I hope they don't do this whole starting at 1 p.m. till for 12 hours, burying it until the middle of the night, restricting the press. Like, I hope it happens in a more openly and transparent way. What do you think is the best call to action for citizens taking all this in? Hmm. What, do you, what are we watching for? What are we trying to learn here? If there is a role for us, what is it? I mean, I think reading those briefs is a good start. Now, I know it's their legalese, but I think at least some of the beginning arguments, even if you glance over the table of contents and see the outline for the brief itself, I think is sort of helpful. But as far as what we're looking for, I mean, I think it depends on where you live. I think you could play a much more active role if you, for, for example, live in Colorado, home to Senator Cory Gardner. But, And I don't think there's anything wrong with calling and saying, I want an open process, or I think you need to hear from witnesses if you live in that state. But I, I mean, I don't know if there's one thing we're watching for. I think it's just to keep watch. I think that's right. I think it's important to pay attention to this. And just, I think, keep watch is a great phrase for it. Holding on to what matters, discarding what doesn't matter, recognizing that this trial is not going to play out over Twitter, and that the best thing that we can really do is kind of go to good print media that we rely on to see what the themes are, to understand how our specific representatives are handling the process. Um, I don't want to watch every senator on cable news talking about what happened in the room. I just want to know, how did they vote when it was time to vote on whether we see more witnesses or not? You know, how mm-hmm. how are they resolving some of these motions? To the extent that we get all that information, that's what interests me most. When people have to go on the record, what do they do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll be here. We'll be on Instagram. We'll be in Twitter present and accounted for keeping watch over the impeachment hearings. And of course, Beth will be on the Nightly Nuance doing deep dives on Patreon. And we just love hearing from y'all. So if you if you know what you're watching for, or if you notice something, send us an email, catch us on Instagram or Twitter. Beth, who are you complimenting this week? Actually, I don't know what I'm asking. I know who you're complimenting and I'm joining in because I think it's such a good compliment. We wanted to highlight Representative Ayanna Presley and the approach that she has taken to sharing with the world that she is dealing with alopecia. And um, if you aren't familiar with alopecia, it involves hair loss. And she just kind of unveiled 
herself uh, without any hair in this extraordinary video for The Root that you just must watch in full. It's mm. not very long. It is so moving. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum, what you think of the squad or any of that. Mm -hmm. This is so moving as a woman and a human being to see someone speaking about what her hair has meant in her life and what it's like Mm -hmm. to confront losing it and embracing a new definition of beauty and a new image in the mirror. And it is just extraordinarily powerful. My favorite moment is when she says like, Her husband told her not to do this. She doesn't owe it to anybody. And she was like, but I'm a woman. I'm a black woman and I'm a black woman in politics. And so it is political and it's both personal and political to me. And so I have to talk about it. I thought that was so powerful. And, you know, I was already thinking about this journey and the role of hair in a woman's life because Ricky Lake recently came out with her own um, journey with alopecia and shaved her head and talked about it. And what I thought was so interesting is that both Ayanna Presley and Ricky Lake were talking about like these really iconic hair moments they had. Ricky Lake with her hair in hairspray, which was her actual like virgin hair that they back teased and bleached. And Ayanna Presley with her braids, which became so iconic and so important to little girls. And she goes into all of that, just put pressure on their hair and so then they're dealing with the the fallout, literally, of these iconic hairstyles. And, you know, it's, I want to just be like, yeah, you know, screw patriarchy, everybody shave their hair if they want to. But I mean, that's, listen, hair and hair tied to a woman's worth and beauty goes way deeper than modern patriarchy. You know, like this is, this is biblical. This is <laughs> ancient, this idea of, a woman being and a woman in her beauty being tied to her hair. And so, I mean, I feel like it's almost cellular for so for them to be brave enough to stand up and reveal themselves that way. And I mean, Ayanna Presley, I just I like her just vulnerability and the way she talks about it. I was in tears. It's so amazing. And just bravo to her. Bravo. I'm so glad you mentioned that part about her husband. I was thrilled that they left that in the video and shared that with Mm -hmm. everyone because I thought both things are true. She doesn't Mm -hmm. owe this to anybody. And also it is very political. And so I think that's a good way to highlight that it is a gift when you choose to step into that and make it public. It's a gift from her. She does not owe it to to the world. Uh, And she chose to do it. And so many people will be helped and supported and embraced differently because of her decision to do that. So please go watch the video. We'll put it in our show notes. Spend the entire seven or eight minutes with it. You you will be just blessed by the impact of it, truly. Next up, we are going to talk about the New York Times endorsements and where we are on the Democratic primary. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. 
You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Bet. May the best woman win. Closing line from the New York Times. A historical co-endorsement of both Senator Warren and Senator Klobuchar for the Democratic primary. Everybody lampooning this decision I do think she'd focus on that line and take in for a minute the fact that we have two women endorsed by a really significant publication in the United States for president. That's great. It's nice to see those two pictures. This is a yep. This is not a perfect portrait of America, but it's progress. It looks pretty good. Listen, Kristen Zilla and the rest of his crew busting on them. Get out of here. I don't want to hear what you have to say because you know what I prefer? I prefer a New York Times saying it looks like there's a debate here. These are the two women, gay, who both represent this debate about whether we're going to take the presidency of Donald Trump as an opportunity to really change our institutions or to go back to a more moderate approach to politics. And we are not the kings or queens of the world, the all-seers of everything, who should decide 
which is the best approach for America? We're in the middle of this conversation. These are the people we think best represent both sides. The voters can decide which approach should win. I really, really appreciated that. Someone had tweeted today, and I wish I could remember who it was. I I just can't sitting here. That the first step in credibility restoration for the media is to stop doing endorsements. Mm. And I had this gut reaction of like, yeah, that's right. And then the more I thought about it, the more I decided, no, I do not agree with that. I think Mm -hmm. part of the challenges that we're facing as a nation come from the fact that numerous institutions, media, government, religion, educational, all over the place, are not serving us well. And I don't think the answer is, well, then minimize those roles, right? Yeah. And so I agree with you. I think to recognize that there there are credibility issues, to recognize that in any primary, especially this one, you cannot make everyone happy. Mm-hmm. And, and to say not, okay, we'll split the difference, but to highlight this is the tension and there is mm-hmm. there is value in this tension. And it does need to be sorted out by a larger group of people than us. I think that's pretty darn good. I think it's awesome. And this whole, like, we don't know the right answer. Well, thank you, because I love you, New York Times. That is often not your position. Um, You know, to just acknowledge, like, and and this is what I felt like. I don't know the answer. I've done that Washington Post quiz where you fill in the blanks and they tell you which candidate you agree with more 50 times. And every time I get over some of them and I go, I don't know. I don't know if we should make private insurance unavailable or not, I think I pick a different answer every time, you know, like, because how would I know? How would I know as my individual life and perspective and limitations of my own expertise? No. And that also presumes that there is a right answer. And I'm not sure there is. Um, And so I really appreciated them acknowledging that. I also thought it was very smart to not do all these interviews behind closed doors and come out and proclaim, you know, what they thought was right. Instead, they put all the interviews and the transcripts and all these conversations out there in multiple different formats so people can engage with these candidates because that's what endorsements offer, right, is that these editorial boards have access that the rest of us don't. We can't all sit down for an hour and a half with Bernie and have him say the same dang thing 50 times. P.S. I'll let me spoiler alert on that one. Um, And so I just think it's really I think what they've done here is really great to put out all the interviews, to be very transparent and then to say, hey, you know what? We're not going to proclaim what the right answer is. This is what we've witnessed when we when we sat down for a long period of time with all these people and asked them the questions that we think are important and that sometimes they don't get forced to answer. And here's where we settled, but we're letting you all have this information so you can decide for yourselves. And it is a broader analysis than the policy alignment that that Washington Post Mm -hmm. quiz measures or that something like I side with measures. Mm -hmm. When I tweeted that Washington Post link, which I do think is fun and fascinating and can't you can take it a lot of different times. The I side with quiz also very interesting because you can go deep on that. And they not only ask you what you think about a particular issue, they also say, how important is this to you? And I always look at those and think, I don't know, what day yeah. is it? Like, what what's going on <laughs> in the world? 
can, so true. It, it, it fluctuates. And I would want it to fluctuate in my president as well, to be honest with you. Um, and so I think that there is so much value in the editorial board process because it can it can be let's hear about the seriousness of this person's policy proposals. Let's think about their fluency in foreign policy issues. And then let's look at the context of their life experiences, how they answer questions like what's broken your heart, which you must watch Cory Booker's response to if you haven't already. We'll include it in the show notes as well. I mean, they got a really nice look at these people. And as you said, Sarah shared it with all of us. And I I think Mm -hmm. that's great. I mean, I don't mean to be on here stumping for the times, but I do think they do really good work and they do have an important role to play in America. And I, I like the way they played it. Even if I wouldn't vote today for either of these women in the primary, I'm really comfortable with how they framed this up. I had a real journey, um, especially while reading the New York Times. Thoughts on Bernie in the actual endorsement piece and then their interview with Bernie that I would like to share with you. Do you want to talk about Bernie for a minute? I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Well, my first thought was when you were filling out the Times thing and you and they ask about um, prisoners voting, how do you feel about Bernie's the only one who agrees with you that all prisoners should vote? I mean, I was um, interested to see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I think part of the value of these quizzes is showing that, like, I am not personally 100% consistent. I have a wide array of opinions that don't line up neatly with any particular candidate. And there is enormous diversity of thought about these issues within the party. I think a lot of what this Times endorsement gets to is what you've been saying, Sarah, forever, which is that the Democratic Party is trying to hold too much. I saw you posted on Twitter as as I did a screenshot of your Washington Post results, and we're basically exact opposites mm-hmm. in terms of the spectrum of candidates. Um, yet here we both are. We're going to both vote in this primary. And we get feedback that we agree too often on this podcast. I mean, that just shows you that the issues that have dominated the news over the past three years, um, yes, we're very complimentary on. And we also disagree on a lot of really important things. And who lines up with each of us on those is, is going to look kind of bananas sometimes. And I think that's good. Mm-hmm. That makes me yeah. excited about what democracy is supposed to be. Well, here is just my personal emotional journey with Bernie over the last, like, two weeks. I was really thinking about, you know, his leading in the polls in Iowa and the passion of his supporters. I was trying to think about the passion of his supporters in a very open-hearted way, which I have not always done because often I want to punch some people I've had conversations about Bernie with in the face. So I was really trying to do that. And I was thinking about, I was really trying to put myself in a place like, should I just think about what if Bernie is the nominee? How would I feel if Bernie was the nominee? Am I missing something? Is is he the right nominee? Maybe he is the right because of his authenticity, because of his consistency. Is he the right person to go against Donald Trump? I was really, really working through it, okay? Now, the first thing that's happened is this whole kerfuffle over him telling Elizabeth Warren a woman can't win against Donald Trump. And then... I had significantly less open-hearted feelings about Bernie. But what I really was thinking about, and I don't remember who wrote this up, if it was Axios or somebody, was just talking about how far to the left that the Democratic Party has moved. And I think a lot of this has to do with Trump. But I do think Bernie deserves a lot of the credit. And what I really wish he would realize is 
He did what he came to do. Like, I believe in 2016, he ran because he wanted to push the party further to the left, not because he actually thought he could win the nomination. Um, And even if that's not true, even if he, as he repeatedly hearkens to in the New York Times editorial board interview, just loves the grassroots, believes in the grassroots, it's all about the grassroots, blah, 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 I got it. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of grassroots, but Lord. Um, that's fine. But then I just think about where we were as a Democratic Party after Obama, who did a lot of grassroots organizing through his campaign, who had passionate supporters, who people really believed was the future of the party. And we were just decimated when he was gone. And I do not believe that the leadership style of Bernie Sanders, despite how strongly I feel about many of his policies, is the answer to that. The answer is not bring in somebody who's just as populist and who will do this, you're with me or against me, but you'll be with me because I have the best arguments kind of approach. But that doesn't mean if he doesn't get the nomination that he didn't have an impact, a really powerful one. I do think he's pushed the party in more progressive direction. And I think that is really important. I don't think that's going to ease the anger or frustration of many Bernie supporters if he doesn't get the nomination. But I do think it's important to remember, and I also agree with the New York Times, that he is too old. I think that's all really good. I mean, it highlights to me that part of what we might all have to make space for, even though we don't want to, is that it's really pretty healthy to have a lot of people running for president. Uh, It poses Mm. tremendous process challenges that we don't always get right. And I would say there is there are many examples of that in this primary of of not having adapted all the way to where we need to be for it to be a really inclusive process where everybody thinks that the outcome is fair. And still, I I do think all of the people running for president make a mark in their own way. Andrew Yang mm-hmm. has certainly influenced the conversation. Yeah. I still think Andrew Yang could be a legit contender. Um, especially as you and I were talking about, we've been listening to lots of podcasts to prepare for being in Iowa and New Hampshire to really get our arms around those states. And for the first time listening to Caucus Land, I realized, oh my gosh, the Democratic caucuses in Iowa are basically ranked choice voting. Yep. And Barack Obama emerged as the winner because he was so many people's second choice. I never understood that fully. And when you think about that, Andrew Yang might be in a really nice position that polling cannot capture right now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he has definitely made an impact. I read a great piece in The Atlantic this morning about how John Delaney is still running and nobody understands why. And when you talk to him, he says, look, in my own way, I have made a dent in the Medicare for all discussion. That is not a good place for the Democratic Party to be going. And I've I feel like I've made a good case for that. And I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of the other issues that I've talked about out on the trail. And and I think that's right. You spend this much time and energy and just physical presence out talking to voters, however it turns out for you, you've done something really important. And Bernie Sanders has certainly done that on a very broad scale. I personally think that he's pushed things too far to the left, but a lot of people agree with him. And I think another thing that was nice about the Times endorsement piece was recognizing, was pushing Senators Klobuchar and Warren to recognize 
that neither of them have a monopoly on ideology within the party, that there are lots and lots of people in a very different place than they are. And you got to work that out if you want to be the president. Okay. well, I would like to make a counterpoint to the lots of candidates. I agree with you. And also, I think there are some candidates who are having almost solely and completely a negative impact. I'm looking at you, Michael Bloomberg. I'm starting to get real fired up about this. The idea that we're going to beat someone like Donald Trump by further shredding our norms and processes and leaning any even heavier into just a complete and total media circus and media first approach. I really don't like it. And even if that is the only way we win, I don't want to win that badly. The fact that he is just like not even participating in the editorial board interviews, only buying ads, making it harder for other local politicians to buy ads because he's buying up so many. Oh, it just it's making me more mad and more mad by the second. I don't know how I feel about Michael Bloomberg. Here are things that are all true for me at the same time, at least one of which is going to annoy every person listening to this. So just I appreciate your grace. I think these are all true. I think it is true that there are very real stakes in this race for a lot of people, even more real than they feel to me, for example. And I think that for many of those populations, they would say whatever it takes to be Donald Trump is fine. And I don't want to be dismissive of that viewpoint. I think it is also true that there is some strategy in coming into the process late and participating in a different way because so many people get burnout on media coverage over time. And it is true that Bloomberg came in at a point where he's avoided the sort of eye rolling like, oh, I'm so tired of hearing about this person. And, and maybe there's a good strategy in that. Third, I probably would agree with Michael Bloomberg on a lot of policies. He certainly comes up in the quizzes that I take as someone who's a good representative of many of my values. He advocates for a much larger federal government than I would ever want, but that's going to be true of just about anybody I vote for here, and, and that's okay. I can come to terms with that. But probably I'm pretty aligned with him, and probably he wouldn't be a bad president. Fourth, I am tired of needing to educate the president on how we talk about women. And I'm mm-hmm. really unhappy that he has failed to meaningfully address the way he's treated women in the past. And he's failing to release women from non-disclosure agreements to talk about that themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's deeply problematic. I think the way he has dealt with his own media outlets about his coverage has been problematic. And I don't like the idea that you can just buy your way into your own lane. Ugh. It that that does feel wrong on so many levels. And so all those things are true for me at the same time. And and the bottom line is if if Michael Bloomberg pulls out a win in the Democratic primary because he has flooded the airwaves and because people trust his experience, which he does have very relevant executive experience, more so than the rest of the field, I think, um, with the possible exception of Vice President Biden. 
I will vote for him if he's the nominee running against Donald Trump. And I will not struggle with that to the extent that I might struggle to vote for some of the other uh, Democratic candidates. So he is just a real mixed bag for me. I think his candidacy is interesting. I think it deserves a lot of discussion. What does it mean that this is even happening? It's really Mm -hmm. different than the Tom Steyer approach, right? Which is... I'm I'm going to use my own money, but I'm still going to do the things that I have to do to get into the traditional lane. I mean, he is just saying, like, look, I can afford to do this my own way, and I'm going to. And I'm going to cloak that in altruism by saying I don't want to take anybody else's money. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating what it says about America that his candidacy is possible, and, and I find it to be really complicated. Well, here's what I want everybody to think about, including Democrats. You know, one thing we've learned, and we're going to talk about more in detail on a primer about the Iowa and New Hampshire caucus and primary, respectively, is that they came about after the 1968 Democratic Convention. And the Democrats decided that we couldn't stand this anymore. We had to have so much more transparency in our process. And we had to get the hand the process out of the hands of elites and out of those smoke-filled rooms. Oh, Lord, we just all hate those smoke-filled rooms. Okay, great. We did even further changes after the 2016 election to insert more transparency and more democratic process into the primary um, because of issues with Bernie and Hillary, which can't can't have those superdelegates, can't have the elites, can't have those smoke-filled rooms. And we're going to circle all the way back around if Michael Bloomberg wins this primary because what he's going to do is buy his own smoke-filled room and he's going to be the only one in it. And I just want us all to think about that. If transparency and democratic participation always produces the most democratic process, I know that sounds weird and paradoxical, but I think Michael Bloomberg is single-handedly forcing us to think about it. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Sorry, I'm really fired up about this. No, no, you don't need to be sorry. I I think related to that, I'm just thinking about the Electoral College for a second. (laughs) Because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're getting ready to go talk about the Electoral College um, with some college students, which I'm really excited about. And in preparing for that, I've been thinking about the fact that a national popular vote for president was never on the table when the nation was founded. It was unthinkable. We didn't even have direct election of senators. You know, there was a real concern that things happening in a purely democratic fashion doesn't produce the best results. And I think there was wisdom in that approach. And I think that approach also came from the fact that our founders were not a diverse group of people. And that our country has never been governed by a diverse group of people. And I don't just mean in terms of race or ethnicity or religion. I mean also in terms of socioeconomic status. You know, the fact is that college-educated voters are more likely to show up. Um, Professionals have an easier time participating in democracy than non-professionals. Just the sheer logistics of being able to get to a place at whatever time it requires and not have to worry about your employer punishing you for it. And so I don't know that we've ever tried true democracy, you know, in the sense that everyone has the same opportunity to show up and participate. And I think the conversations that we have about money and politics and the Electoral College sort of continue that theme of, How do we make it more democratic? What among the small group of people compared to the whole who already really influenced this process? And so when you talk about what Bloomberg's doing, is it more democratic 
to have an ad at the Super Bowl than to have a house party in New Hampshire? Yeah, probably. Um, in the sense of making yourself accessible to a larger number of voters with different life experiences, yes. But then it closes the doors really significantly if those voters ever want to run themselves. And Michael Bloomberg has spent a lot of his own money to do a great amount of good for many people and organizations in the country. And in that sense, I think I understand what he's trying to do here. In another sense, I think, but gosh, isn't the better way to do that, to not make it about yourself, to not become the candidate, but to fund the candidate that you believe mm-hmm. in? And and look, I mean, probably the answer is uh, it doesn't matter because all human beings are flawed and everyone running for president has to have an enormous ego. You just have to. You can't do this job otherwise. I don't fault anybody for that. It's just really complicated. I mean, I'm I'm interested to read so much more about the Bloomberg campaign for these very reasons. It does raise some really fundamental questions about us. I think the question of what is democratic when we talk about voting in the process breaks down in two ways. Who's participating and how are they participating? Yeah. And get out your bingo card because I'm going to talk about Jill Lepore right now. What I learned from her book is, you know, we spent a lot of time in the beginning of our history talking about who gets to participate, who gets to vote. And that was most certainly animating so many of the decisions our founding fathers, white landowning men, were making is, well, it's best if we exclude some people. And it took us a long time. And we're not 100% there yet, but I do feel like the conversation about who gets to participate is um, not coming to an end because I think we, you know, because of voter suppression and so many issues, we still have a lot of work to do there. But, you know, we're not debating about whether somebody should vote based on the color of their skin legally. We're not excluding women from the vote or non-property owners. So, you know... Now, I think one thing we really need to talk about, which I do think the Founding Fathers thought about, is how do we participate? Because, you know, to the book I spoke about a few weeks ago, and there's a really good article the author wrote in The Atlantic that we'll link to in the show notes, Politics is for Power, is watching a commercial political participation? I don't think it is. Like, I don't think consuming politics is a part of the democratic process. And I think we've let it become almost the totality of the democratic process to our detriment. Um, I hope desperately um, as a person who produces political content that no one listening to my voice thinks that listening to this podcast is the end of your political participation because it isn't. I want people to think desperately and deeply and constantly about politics And then do something. Have a conversation. Register people to vote. Run for office yourself. Go to a local commission or city council meeting. Go to a local school board meeting. Talk to your neighbors about what they need from the government and what they're not getting. You know, I think that Michael Bloomberg's version is political media. And it's just not the same. I agree with most of that. I will say that I think incarceration still does pose one of those foundational Mm, issues about who gets to participate. But Mm -hmm. in terms of the how, I I 
100% agree that consumption of information about politics is not the totality of political participation. I think it's part of it. I do think we should engage with information, know what we're talking about as we show up to exercise that power. Yeah, but a commercial's not information. That's just emotional manipulation. Well, true, except that. Is it not more realistic to think I can bring people into... You you have to bring people into the process. And if I'm comparing the Bloomberg commercial to the high-dollar donor event, or even to a rally that requires transportation and timing, childcare, et cetera, to show up for, I don't think it's wrong of Bloomberg to believe that he can reach more people this way than through some of the other channels. Right, but the difference is they can't talk back. At a rally, you're knocking on some people's doors. You're listening. There's no listening in a commercial. There isn't. But if that if that prompts the person to take a new action, maybe I show up to vote now. Or maybe this does make me want to tune in to a debate. Or maybe this prompts me to read an article or Google him or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I do think that it is important to be honest here in 2020 America about how many people are excluded from the traditional channels of the process just by virtue of their life circumstances and interest level. And if Michael Bloomberg's money brings some of those people in for the first time to vote, then hallelujah and amen, whether they vote for him or not. If if he reaches people in a new way, that's what Donald Trump did, you know? The, the Facebook ads worked for Donald Trump outside of the mm-hmm. normal process, and here come people who haven't voted before. And so, yeah. you know, I... I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying I I get it and I want to wrestle with it. Oh, I want to wrestle it. Wrestle it to the ground. (laughs) Well, I don't want to end our awesome conversation about the endorsement of and the concluding sentence, may the best woman win, talking about Michael Bloomberg and Bernie. So back to Warren and Klobuchar. I'm thrilled with this endorsement. I think it was the right call. Good jobs, New York Times. And I would love to continue to hear from y'all. I love hearing people's best arguments for their candidates. I would like to welcome, can we just declare it a week of positivity and gentleness around candidates around here? And just ask y'all, like, who are you rooting for and why? All upside, not here's what's wrong with the other person, but just this is what I love about this person. I always learn something new. I got a great email about um, Pete Buttigieg this week um, in terms of his support around women's issues that I didn't know about. And I love that kind of information. So whomever it is, your best argument, I would love to hear it. I'm listening. I like that you just declared impeachment week a week of positivity. (laughs) You know, it's the it's the. <laughs> the balance in the force that I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are both thinking about the same thing outside of politics this week, which is that Brandy Carlisle is the best among us. I'm not sure this is how Beth would frame it, but I would like to proclaim Brandy Carlisle. I'm adding her to my list. The list is now Oprah, Dolly Parton, Lynn Manuel Miranda, and Brandy Carlisle. We decided. And by we, I mean mostly Sarah and I enthusiastically (laughs) said yes to have our version of a Christmas party at Brandy Carlisle's uh, Ryman residency in Nashville. It was lovely. Here's what I've been thinking about. You know, when you go to a concert, you don't really know what to expect because 
Some concerts are for concert lovers, like the spectacle and the sort of getting to know the person that you don't get by just listening to their music. And then some concerts are really for music lovers, and there's such a seriousness about the instruments and the acoustics. She really elegantly managed to weave both of those together in a way that I'm not sure that I've seen before. I've thought about that so much that this concert was really for concert lovers and serious music lovers. There was spectacle, there was energy, it was entertaining, it was dynamic, and also... Uh, there was this respect about the music that was undeniable. And I mean, I could have spent two hours just listening to her performance where she and um, her two singers that are always with her stepped in front of the microphone so that you could just hear the purity of the sound within the room. It was it was remarkable. So this is what I learned when I fell down a very deep YouTube hole about Brandi Carlisle. So the first thing is, these are the the twins that she speaks of, the Hansforth, I hope I'm saying their names right, brothers. And so they describe it as a band called Brandi Carlisle. Like, that's the band's name. Not, this is Brandi Carlisle and her band, which I think is very interesting. Um, They split everything three ways. And that song, which I'm now obsessed with, The Eye. So they did a tour, Beth, where they, they call it the pin drop tour, where that's how they performed the entire tour, unamplified. I would be happy to go to that. Right? Yes. Mind-blowing. Okay. So I also learned that, and I already knew this because y'all be filling up our DMs about how good Brandi Carlisle concerts are when we first told y'all that we were going. Um, She's just the most generous person with the stage. I literally witnessed her reach out to the Warren Treaty who appeared at our performance on Thursday night and say, oh, y'all should stop by Thursday night, like in the Instagram comments. Like they said something and she commented and was like, oh, well, you need to come. And I kind of noticed it because I thought, oh, my God, what if they come? And in fact, they came and performed. And she was just totally gleeful in their presence, like in all of their talent. So happy to sing with them, just like a kid who couldn't believe that this was her job, which I believe she actually said out loud on the first night, like, I can't believe this is my job. She had Cheryl Crow on. I don't want to brag. I do feel like that was the best night as far as... I mean, we still have two more nights as we're recording this to see who shows up with her. Anyway, um, it just, like, her generosity, even with the fact that, you know, she talks about it as it's a band. They split every three ways. The way she talks about the twins um, and performs with them is just so... And they even talk about that song was, like, a big turning point for them because it's really just the three of them in lead. Um, I just... I love her. And I think it's not fair... That one person is that extraordinarily talented. I mean, she plays the piano. She plays the guitar. Her songwriting, I think, which she they are part of the songwriting, too. The songwriting is so unbelievably good. And, like, if that wasn't enough, her voice, she sang Case of You by Joni Mitchell, which I love Joni Mitchell and that album in particular. And that is not an easy song to sing. And she slayed it. Oh, my God, it was so beautiful. I want a live recording of her performing that album tomorrow. I don't know who's in charge of that, but they need to move faster. Yeah, it was wonderful all around. I agree with all that. Natalie Hemby opened for her and was spectacular. Sang a song with her daughter on stage. So sweet. And my favorite thing she said is she tells her daughter, just because someone's nice to you doesn't mean that they're a nice person. And she said, I understand that 2019 was very good to me, but it wasn't good to everybody. And I thought, what a beautiful way to articulate that. Because I felt some of that. 2019 was a good year for us, but I never wanted to say it, you know? And I just love that she articulated it that way. It's also just really fun to see people who are in the mindset that getting to do this is a real privilege. 
Mm-hmm. And it's still really fun. I No shade for people who get tired of it, because I can imagine how exhausting Lord. that life must be. And as a fan, witnessing the joy of someone like Brandi mm-hmm. Carlisle as she performs is a gift. It's It was just, it was a gift. It was an oh, excellent way to spend our holiday party. And Sarah, I am so glad that you feel good about the guest because the whole time the concert is starting, Sarah is worried about who the guest is going to be and whether we're there on the right night to get the best mm-hmm. guest. No, I feel like we got, th- I mean, I don't know. We don't know who's going to show up tonight and tomorrow night, but I feel really good about it. We got three high women songs, which was the most, I think she's performed at any of the sets, not to brag or rub it into somebody that went on another night. Um, because Cheryl Crow performs on the album, so they sang a lot more from the High Woman album, and obviously because Natalie Hemby was there. Oh, I just I do need that High Woman tour announcement though. They need to like go ahead and get on that. Would be helpful. I hope that y'all have had a good week and that you had something last week that brought you as much joy as this concert brought to us. Stay in touch with us on your impeachment questions. We'll try to cover as much as we can on Friday's episode to help you stay in the loop. And do send us those gentle, peaceful, happy thoughts about presidential candidates. (laughs) Until Friday, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.